Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're here to study the book of Matthew, chapter 18. So turn to that page, if you will, Matthew 18, where we're going to pick it up, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, where we left off right around verse 8 or 9. But I'm going to review the chapter so you get the context of where we are. Um, in the vast scheme of Jesus's life, we are less than a year from the crucifixion, resurrection, and, ascent, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. He's been ministering. Lately, he has been focusing more on the disciples and less on the crowds. This whole, most of this chapter, 18, is focused inward toward an institution he mentioned recently, which is the church. And it's all about interpersonal relationships within the church. Um, so pick it up in verse 1 of Matthew 18. Uh, and so that I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or do something there. Amen from Zoom land. I like that. Okay. Matthew 18, by way of review. At that time, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We said last week, this is kind of a silly question because Jesus is the one they're asking. He's the greatest in the kingdom. But they're asking for themselves. In the book of Luke, this, this occasion occurs and we learn that it's an argument. They're actually arguing, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, he's the greatest. It's incredible. They do this several times, including the night before he's crucified in the gospel of John, which makes the Lord Jesus wash feet to show them humility. Here he's going to show them a different type of humility. Who's the greatest? Verse 2. He called the little child and had him stand among them. Verse 2. And he said, verse 3, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about humility, teachability, soft hearts, gentleness. A child knows that he or she is dependent. So these are the characteristics. Become like a little child. It's an oxymoron. It's sort of a contradiction, isn't it? Who's the greatest? And he says, the smallest, most humble one. So um, you'll never enter the kingdom unless you become like little children. Verse 4, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We talked about humility a lot last week. Verse five, and whoever welcomes, how do you treat other believers? A little child like this in my name welcomes me. Now I wanna make one distinction before we get to verse five, verse six. He's not talking just about little kids. Sometimes these verses are used to say, it's especially bad if you do a crime against a little child. I think it's, that's right, that it is a crime. But in this context, he's not talking just about little kids. Look at verse 3. Again, you have to, unless you change, he's talking to adult believers here. Unless you change and become like little children. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child. He's making an analogy that all Christians, whether they know it or not, we're all his kids. We're all, in a way, little dependent children. Verse 5, whoever welcomes a little child like this, he means any believer. How people treat believers is so important to him, that's what he's going to talk about. 
Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. How personally does Jesus take it? How other people treat Christians? Or to make it pinch a little more, how you and I treat other Christians? Answer, he takes it very, very personally. Just as you would with your son or daughter if somebody was mistreating them, uh, same kind of thing. If whoever welcomes a child like this, so if somebody blesses you, welcomes you, helps you out, encourages you, that's like you helping or welcoming or feeding a sandwich to the Lord Jesus. Elsewhere, later in Matthew, he's going to say, those that are in heaven, the sheep, he's going to say about them, when I was thirsty, I, Jesus, was thirsty. You gave me a drink of water. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was sick, you came and visited you. And they will say, the belief, when did we do that for you? And he says in that passage, when you did it for the least of these, my brethren, my little children, it was like doing it for me. So how you and I treat other Christians is very, very important, even to the point that how other people treat you. Do you have people that mistreat you or persecute you or are jerks to you? Guess what? Jesus doesn't like that. That's how precious you are to him. Okay. If anyone, verse 6, causes one of these little ones, he doesn't mean just children, any believer uh, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jews really feared drowning as one of the worst ways to die. He's saying if you cause one of these Christians in my kingdom to sin. Either directly you tempt them, here, try some of this cocaine, or sleep with me, it's okay, or whatever. Any kind of sin, either direct temptation like that, or indirect. Indirect would be bad example. That they see your life, they go, well, he's a Christian, and he seems to do okay stealing, or lying, or getting drunk, or sleeping around, whatever it is. Either way, he's saying, that is very bad. Um, it'd be better to drown. Verse 7, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Here he's saying you can expect temptation, bad example, enticement from the world. We see it in television, radio, um, movies, right? Popular magazines. Of course there's temptation. He says, but way worse if it's coming from a so-called believer. Uh, such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Now he's going to talk about sin in general. We, we started this last week. Uh, now we'll get into a little more. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, sin, tempt someone, whatever the case may be, Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire, the fire, yeah, of hell. Okay, we talked last week about the fact that this is not meaning this literally gouging out eyes cutting off hands if you've sinned as much as i have you'd run out of hands and eyes pretty quickly right 
And besides, if you gouge out both your hands and cut off, uh, gouge out both your eyes and cut off both your hands, you can still sin in your mind, still sin with what you say. So what he's saying is, sin is much, much, much more serious than people think it is. Oh, God understands, boys will be boys, and we all kind of sin, and we're just sort of winking at it. He's saying, sin is so serious, treat it that way and deal, listen, radically with it. Don't hesitate. You and I are standing under a tree outside. Got the picture? It's a summer day, and I turn to you and say, hey, Dave, there's a black widow spider on your neck. Does Dave say, thanks for letting me know. I'll think about it, and I'll get back to you right? No, Dave's reflexes are now like a cat, right? I didn't even get the words out and he's already slapping his neck and right? Deal radically with sin. If you tend to sin when you're around Jeremy, stay away from Jeremy. If you sin when you go out to eat in a restaurant whether visually for some reason, or I have an extra beer or two or three or five or 11 or 16, don't go to a restaurant with alcohol. If your old friends that you used to hang out with, when you hang out with them now, you revert back to the old me that did those bad things, maybe God is pruning your tree, John 15, and saying, it's time for you to make a clean break. Listen, Unbelievers need Christians to witness to them, but if it's going to make you sin, you maybe need to back off and let someone else do that. So it's hyperbole, but he's saying deal radically with sin. Treat it like a tumor. Nobody gets the diagnosis. You got a big cantaloupe-sized tumor in your stomach, Joe. Nobody would say, well, you know, those cells have a right to live too right? You would say, get every bit of it as soon as possible. Deal radically with sin, because it's way worse than we may think it is. It's okay to sacrifice in fighting sin. Don't be casual about it, like the black widow spider analogy. Um, He has, in Matthew 5, he said the same thing. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Remember all that? Hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In that context, it was about lust. Here, it's about tempting another brother. And in the context of the church, it's very important because sin spreads individually in me, but it spreads in a church. You'd be surprised. A church that winks at sin is going to be a church where there's two sinners, and then in a month, there's five, and then there's 30, and it starts spreading like 11, right? Okay, Um, we talk about this a lot. I use the analogy of one of these, a cell phone. The temptation, sin never starts with your mouth or your hands or the rest of your body. It starts, doesn't even start with what you look at. It starts here. Don't entertain the thought. What do you mean about the cell phone? My cell phone, when my phone rings, I can see, oh, it's Ken calling me. If I'm too busy, I don't take the call, but usually Ken's my friend. Hey, Ken, how are you doing? 
when you get that thought, that temptation, that remember those good times you had when you were drinking or smoking or whatever you were doing, that's Satan calling. It says Satan calling from Temptation, California. I don't know where that is. Don't take that's down south. Yeah, Ken said. Don't take the call. You can refuse the call. Change your mind the way we think. When I am tempted, I immediately try to say, God, I don't want to think about that. Fill me with your spirit. I want to praise you and think about great things. I love you, Lord Jesus. You know what? Satan hates that. That makes me like it a little more. Don't entertain the thought. Recognize the source of temptation. The good news is it's not just you and me against the world. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 speaks about God. The day is coming. This is written more than 2,000 years ago, Old Testament. When God tells the Jews one day soon, Messiah is coming, he will write his law on our hearts and in our spirits and in our minds, and we will have regenerated minds. That's what we have with the Holy Spirit. Can't you still sin? Yes. Can you resist the Holy Spirit? Yes. To the extent you and I submit to the Holy Spirit, we are walking the path God has for us. To the extent that you and I resist the Holy Spirit and go our own way, we're, we're still free to do that. We get off the path and our lives go awry, so to speak. Okay, let's keep rolling. We ba barely talked about verse 10 last time. Um, but he is talking about hell there, by the way, uh, in verse nine, better for you. And, and in the verse before it, better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Deal radically with sin. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, I got to define it. He doesn't mean children only. It means all believers see the Christian church two ways. Number one, look around the room at your church and you see Christians wherever they are, your sister and your brother. Number one. Number two, they're all little children. That, or they are supposed to be humble, right? Verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. From this verse, and pretty much from this verse alone, has come the idea, mostly in Catholicism, of how many have heard this term, guardian angels, right? And the theory is, some people say, each Christian has their own guardian angel, right? Zoom to you guys. Some people believe, no, just children have guardian angels, one per person. That is not what this verse says. Well, aren't, you, aren't angels ministering spirits that are here to serve and bless believers? Yes, that's Hebrews chapter 1. Okay, well, what are you saying? The way this reads in Greek, it's plural. It is not one per, but don't worry, that doesn't mean, well, no, now I'm not covered. Joe just took away my guardian angel. I talk to him every night. By the way, don't pray to angels. Don't talk to your angels. That's so new agey. In the Bible, you know what there are? Prayers to God the Father. Occasional prayers to Jesus. We pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't talk to angels. Don't talk to dead people. 
your aunt Sarah died 20 years ago and you're still, you know, Sarah, I really, aunt Sarah, I'm, don't talk to the dead. Okay, now that I made you feel guilty, God's eye is on every single believer. That's what verse 10 is saying. How you treat fellow believers is so important to God. He says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. See the beginning of verse 10? What's he talking about? Talking about what we said last week. I hope I didn't step on any toes. But the hardest part of being a Christian is not the Bible or Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit. It's other Christians. Because there's always a few annoying ones. Some of you are pointing at me. That's okay. The point is, this verse says, don't despise any believer. Don't mistreat any believer. Don't be cold to any believer. Don't make any distinctions even. Listen, well, he's very wealthy. Come, Mr. Johnson, come sit in the front row. Oh, he's poor. He doesn't even have shoes. You go stand in the back. That sort of thing, James talks about it, Jesus talks about it, is so wrong. So don't despise any believer regardless. Um, one of these little ones, his believers, those who believe in him. I tell you that their angels, plural, in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, there was a saying, and it's in the Old Testament, about this uh, idea that those who work for the king, okay, think back to that kind of government, there were those who worked for the king. What does Jeff do? He works for the king. Oh, that's great. What does Ken do? The saying was, he always sees the face of the king. What do you mean? Jeff may work for the king, making food in the kitchen or something, but Ken is in the king's presence always, watching the king's face when he needs something, he's on it. The point of this verse is that the angels that guard Christians in a general sense, and by the way, I may be wrong, maybe you do have a guardian angel, I just don't see it in scripture. This is the main verse for guardian angels. Every commentary I read said, that's not what it's being said. Don't think that I'm discounting in any way the fact that God cares about you and angels are here to minister to us protect us sometimes. I've come close to having major accidents. I always picture that there was an angel, the angel that went like that or did something to protect me. I'm not giving the angel credit. I'm giving God the credit. He cares about me. The point is, um, don't look down upon, despises kataphroneo in Greek. It means to think down on, to look at somebody as worthless or inferior. Oh, he's a new Christian. He's a this Christian. He's a that Christian. Um, there's no distinctions in Christianity. So he's saying that their angels watch the face of God for any concern over Doreen or any believer here, and God may dispatch angels to help protect them. For that reason, if God cares that much, don't you despise any of them, even if they're despisable. Right, you've heard of disposable? Despisable, what do you mean? They're just annoying, they're just different. Don't be careful, that's God's kid. Verse 11. Oh, that's why I don't have it, that's right. Um, okay, I have to turn my page of notes, give me one second here. Uh, verse 11, some of you, how many have verse 11 in your Bible? Let me see your hands. Some, about a third. Okay, verse 11 is not in the best and oldest manuscripts. 
like this Bible here goes from verse 10 to verse 12. You say, well, uh, it's the same. Why is it in there? Okay, here's the reason. And the Bible's very honest about this stuff. Chapter 19 of Luke, you don't have to turn there. Verse 10 says, for the Son of Man has uh, came to seek and to save what was lost. Is that what your verse 11 says? It's the same. Manuscripts are a funny thing. There are about 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible. The more copies we find and have, the more you can put together what was in the original. The oldest and best manuscripts don't have verse 11. Don't make that make you worry because it's in Luke, like I said, word for word. Someone in the parallel passage in Luke saw it and put it into Matthew. Does that mean it's not true? No, it's absolutely true. It just wasn't what Matthew wrote, that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. The other reason somebody inserted that here, and it's true, he came to seek and save those that he intended to save who were lost, who were straying, whatever the case may be. Why would someone introduce that here? Because the word lost is going to come up like crazy from now on in this chapter. Watch. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, meaning what? Lost right? One of them wanders away. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for that one who that wandered off? And if he finds it, verse 13, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the other 99 that didn't wander off. What's going on here? Okay. I want you to notice God places value on individual Christians. How many know that if God had a fridge, your picture would be on it? It not to be a really big fridge. I know. My point is he knows your name. You know his name. He knows your name. In fact, he knows you better than anyone in this world ever has and loves you anyway. Right? Because he knows all the ugly stuff in me and stuff that I don't even want to admit, let alone my wife wouldn't or my kids but he loves us anyway. God places such value on each individual that in this analogy, there's a man, right? Who is the man in the analogy? God. What does he own? He owns a hundred sheep. They are in the text, his sheep. Um, if you know anything about shepherds, you know that this is not normally the case. What do you mean? I mean, normally, um, Jim back there would own a hundred sheep. And that means he's got some wealth. He owns a hundred sheep, but he would hire um, Randy to be his shepherd. Randy gets paid to take care of Jim's sheep. Randy may not care about J Jim's sheep, the way Jim does, because Jim owns the sheep. Randy, it's like, this is just a gig, man, right? He's a hireling, exactly. It's called in the Bible elsewhere. 
in this case, the owner of the sheep, God, is so involved when 1% of his flock is gone. He takes it so personally, he goes and looks. If you've ever run a business or owned a business, you know that there's a certain percentage, and it's more than 1%, that you just are willing to write off as loss. If you own a retail business, they write off bigger percentages than one on people are going to break stuff, people are going to steal stuff. We just write it off. There are sheep owners probably that would go, it's one out of 100. Who cares? Not God. This is a picture of two things. Number one, somebody that's not yet a believer. They're lost. They're in drug addiction. They're in alcohol addiction. They're in lust. They're stealing. They're lying, whatever it may be. But God intends to save that person. Okay? And the other way this dials in is this person is a Christian. Church going. Serves in the church. Solid faith. But... He's straying. He's not submitting to the Holy Spirit. When Satan calls, he takes the call and bites into the temptation. And now he's lost. He's way up in the mountains. Look at it again. Man owns 100 sheep. One of them wanders away. That's only one. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for that one who wandered off? God will chase you down. One of the ways you can tell a real Christian, I hesitate to say this because you got to put the time factor in, but a real Christian who comes to church and is solid in their faith, if they go off the deep end, stop going to church, stop coming to Bible study or watching on Zoom, and they just start living a whole different life, if that person is a real born again Christian with the Holy Spirit living inside of them, I'm here to tell you that not only is God going to chase them, but the Holy Spirit living inside of them will make them miserable. And the guilt and the feeling of being away from God's people, and I'm so far from God now, will eat them alive until they come back. When someone is a church-going so-called Christian, walks away from the faith, lives the next 40 years, let's say, away from Jesus, totally lives a sinful life and dies. First John chapter 2, verse, right around verse 19 and 20 says, they, those kinds of people, went out from us because they were never really of us, saved. Their going, this, that verse says, you can look it up later, showed that they were never really one of us. It's possible, listen, to go to church and meet people, and it seems like a nice Christian woman or man or whatever, and they have a said faith as opposed to a real born-again faith. It's easy. Jesus, praise God. Yeah, thank you. Amen. Amen. And they don't really, they've never really been changed. They may be coming to the church for other reasons. Wolves among the sheep, right? But John 10 talks about the good shepherd, which is Christ, that he knows his sheep by name, that they, the sheep, guess what? Hear his voice. That one that left the flock is going to hear, shouldn't be doing this. This is Jesus. Come back, William, Harold, whatever, right? Okay, so the shepherd notices one sheep. They're his sheep. He knows them by name, but... Uh, 
He's got love and care for all Christians. By the way, in the Bible, I know you probably know this, the goats represent unbelievers on his left side. Sheep represent, I know what you're thinking, sheep represent believers, okay? Why sheep? Dolphins are really smart. Chimpanzees are pretty smart. If you're gonna pick an animal, sheep are really, really dumb. Years ago, um, when we met in Course Gold, there was a guy that came to the, to the Bible study for a few years, name was Richard. He was a shepherd. He had sheep in Course Gold, a bunch of them. And he confirmed that they are so dumb that if they're on a cliff and one of them wanders off and, and falls off the cliff, others will follow. You would think they'd get to the edge and go, oh, I'm not going there. That's how dumb they are. They are also defenseless. They're also um, prone to do just this, wander. That's you and me. We have a short attention span. In any case, the lost sheep is a child of God. He's a backslider, backslidden, meaning he believes, but he's wandered away. God will not let that person go, thank God, just like you wouldn't if it was your child. Um, a carrier pigeon can find his way home. There's stories of dogs that find their way home hundreds, if not a thousand miles, not sheep. We need a shepherd. The shepherd provides for the sheep, protects the sheep, leads the sheep. You could spend all day on that. Read Psalm 23 tonight. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. All my needs are met by him, in other words. Okay. If he finds the sheep, verse 13, he's happier about that one than the other 99. You say, well, then I'm going to wander off just so God will be happy. No, no. It's not what it means. Believe me, he loves the 99, but he's so excited that that one comes back or comes to him for the first time. I'm going to tell you that I believe, as do some commentators, that he's not just talking about the guy I mentioned who's wandered off. He used to come to church. Where is Bill? I haven't seen him. He's talking about each of us before we were Christians. Lost sheep. He looks down and sees Joe drinking, using drugs, doing all kinds of stupid things, and says, that's one of mine. He just doesn't know it yet. And I'll tell you what, he made me so miserable it, he took the fun out of sin. It used to be really fun for a while. He took the fun out of it. He drew me in and he drew you in as well. You didn't come on your own. Um, John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him. And you may not have felt it, but that's what he did. Okay. Uh, so, if, if that's the case, remember the context. Don't be the person that made Jeff here wander off, tempted him. Let's go over here, Jeff, and all right. And that's even worse. It, we're still in the context of how to treat other believers, how valuable they are to him, if you will. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Okay. We're moving on. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. 
Okay. On Zoom, is anyone completely asleep? I'm looking. No. Looks good. Amen from Zoom land. I love that sign. Okay. The sheep. Now, starting with verse 15, we're dealing with sin in the church. Also called church discipline. Um, uh, I'm going to tell you that the oldest and best manuscripts don't have the words, and you may, or they may be in italics, in verse 15, against you. Watch. Verse 15. Oh, sorry, I didn't read do 14, did I? In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now I'm going to prove to you that the little ones are Christians, ones that Christ chose before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Why is that? If God isn't willing that any should perish, and you're going to take that to mean any in the world, now you have universalism, which is taught in some churches, and it's not biblical, which is everybody goes to heaven at the end. There's no hell. There's no judgment. No, this verse is speaking of, he's not willing that any of his sheep that he knows by name, that he intends to save or has already saved, will perish. Um, keep your finger here. Boy, where is it in my notes? It's somewhere. Um, I know it's John 6. Hmm. Well, when I find it, I'll tell you. Um, but, uh, well, let's go to John 6, and I'm just going to wing it and hope I get it right. Go to John chapter 6 with me. I want to show you, when all is said and done, the percentage of Christians that God loses? And the answer is none. I found it. John 6, I can't, re I can't resist starting in verse 37. Number one, God gives Jesus his people, the ones that are supposed to come to him. Look at John 6, 37. Most of the ones that the Father gives me will come to me. Is that what it says? 98% of the one, what does it say? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Some kicking and screaming, some take years, but they do come. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that's God the Father, that I shall lose what percentage? None. You know why? Because when there's one that wanders away out of 100, he goes after him. Aren't you glad for that? I might not come back if I wander away on my own, and you might be yelling at me. We're going to come to that in a second. Um, verse 39. I, I, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, verse 40, and believes in him, shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up the last day. You're in good hands. Are you truly saved with the Holy Spirit living inside you? I believe you are. Do you know what that means? You can't lose your salvation. Yes, but so-and-so wandered off. They were either never really saved or give them time. It's going to come back. It's a lost sheep. If it's truly a sheep, they'll come back. Okay. Okay. 
um, the straying sheep. You see the care of God for his sheep. To him, you and I are very, very, very valuable. Some say, by the way, that there's an age of accountability. Have you ever heard of that? Some say it's 13 years old. Why do they pick that number? Because a Jewish boy became a man at 13. You have a responsibility to know the law, but younger than that, you're saved. I don't know that you could prove that from the scripture, but I'll tell you what I believe. I believe if there's a baby, God forbid, that dies, I can't imagine God sending that baby to hell. There are those that say, well, God knows what that baby would have done when he grew up at 27. She would have become a prostitute. And sorry, I know the mercy of God. David in the Old Testament loses a child, a baby. Do you remember? The one he had with Bathsheba. He says, he's very repentant, Psalm 51, I think it is. And he says that the child has gone to be with God. Um, He, the baby, cannot come to me, right? He's not coming back, but I will, I shall go to him. Meaning he believes that innocent baby will be in heaven. All of the judgment stuff we trust to a God that is totally sovereign and totally fair. Verse... um, He's not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's going to save them all. Verse 15. Now we're at dealing with sin in the church. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, some translations have against you. Again, the oldest and best manuscripts don't have the words against you. That's a fairly substantial difference. One is he sins. The other one, he sins against me. He punched my son, or he stole my car, or he beat up my wife, or whatever. He sinned against me. This, the way this is written is, if anyone sins. Wait, what's the context? God's sheep within the church. We're not talking about your neighbor who doesn't believe that you're supposed to go over there and go, Harold, I saw you got drunk yesterday. That's a sin. He's not a believer. And by the way, you're not going to win him to Christ with that kind of an attitude. He's talking about in the church, the children of God, the sheep of God. If anyone, let's read this and then we'll discuss it. This is church discipline, dealing with sin in the church. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan Gentile or tax collector, meaning kick them out, shun them. Okay. Let's skip this whole passage. No, I'm just kidding. What's going on here? Is this a license for me to look for any little sin and go, "Eh." no. We ought to be so focused on God 
and our own lives that we're not doing that. That's putting me in the position of Mr. Judge who just goes around looking for sin and fault and who can I pick on today? Who am I? Who are you? What is being talked about here is a person who is in the church professing Christ, listen, and is sinning habitually. He, Harold, comes to church and he is sleeping with his girlfriend. They live together and they're not married. Is that a sin? Yes. Two types of sexual sin. Adultery. Harold's married, but he's not sleeping with his wife. He's sleeping with someone else. Got the picture? What's the other one? Fornication. Harold is not married. Any sexual sin he commits, even pornography? Yes, pornography. He's sinning. Okay? And it's ongoing. Harold gets drunk every night. Ongoing sin. Joe, uh, Joe has a question. Keep in mind, I need you to make the question one or two sentences because Zoom can't hear you and I need to repeat it. Go ahead. Say that again. Okay, he's saying, what if it's not a brother in the church? It's someone else. Hopefully he goes to... Uh, it, sorry? If it's a pastor, that's somebody in the church. And remember, a pastor is, although he's a, a, a pastor, meaning a shepherd to the sheep, he's actually a sheep as well, isn't he, of Christ. So I think it would apply to a, a sinning pastor. Absolutely. I was involved with eight other guys at a church where the pastor, some of you know, was sinning. And we did Matthew 18. Went individually, went with two or three, actually went more with than that, and it didn't, uh, he wouldn't repent. Yes, amen. So no, it, pastor or not. What this is not is, not is a license to go look for sin. It's also um, not a license for you and I to be um, judging unbelievers. Okay, I want you to notice the first thing. Uh, for verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, and it doesn't have to be against you, because that's not in the original, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Here's what not to do. So-and-so is sinning. I'm going to tell everybody. I'm going to gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? Well, and here's the way Christians, by the way, cloak it. I'm just telling you this so you know how to pray. But check this out. Guess what I heard? Okay. It can't be secondhand. You have to know it's happening. What are you supposed to do? Gossip. Wrong. Tell others. Wrong. Go one-on-one -on -one to the person Listen, this sounds so harsh, so judgmental. Listen, we practice this at this church. I've seen it happen twice in the years I've been here. I'm so thankful because that means if it's me, Mr. S the sinning guy, I trust that y'all, that's plural for you, those of you that never been to the South, will, somebody's going to come to me and go, no offense, Joe, I love you like a brother. This is what I know that you're doing. Point it out. Use scripture. It's a sin in the Bible. 
I'm begging you to repent. Stop doing it. Come back. What concern does God have? He goes after the lost sheep. Aren't you concerned about your sheep sisters and brothers? Right? We ought to do this. Is this a little uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. At times, really uncomfortable. Are we, is he suggesting this? No. He's commanding it. Um, you know what? Let's take our two-minute break that we always do. There's cookies back there. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. It's very important. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. We are back in Matthew chapter 18. We're talking about the uncomfortable but necessary subject of church discipline. There are many, many churches where this practice does not happen. They know so-and-so comes every week and he's sinning. Let God work it out. That's not biblical. If the church doesn't deal with sin in the church, who's supposed to deal with sin in the church if we know about it? It should be confirmed and we know that it's true. And this is the process. Don't gripe, don't gossip, don't be bitter against the person, don't look down your nose at the person. Remember, don't despise one of these little ones. Instead, there are instructions and we need to look at this. Um, number one, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Keep in mind, you do this in love. You do this gently, respectfully with scripture. The goal is not pointing the finger. Look what you did. When our dog does something wrong, we say, what did you do? And the dog knows, <laughs> just gets that look like, I'm sorry. It's not that. It, the goal is restoration. The shepherd goes looking for that one sheep. He doesn't go, what did you do? He goes, yes, I found you, and brings him back. The goal is restoration. Okay, step one, go there by yourself, point out the fault. If they listen to you, meaning they repent, you know what, you're right, thank you. Thank you for calling me out on that. I'm so glad my church cares that I was doing that. And if you listen, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Listen, that's God's glory, not yours. Don't put a little notch on your belt. That's 14 people I've convicted who come. Don't be counting. Num Step two, let's say you go to Harold and say, Harold, I know you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife. I know you're using heroin, whatever. And he says, get lost. I'm coming to church. I'll see you in church Sunday. Wow. Step two, verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 19. It refers to court. You're going to convict somebody the rule was you got to have two or three witnesses, not I heard from Tom who heard it from Michelle that witnesses, I saw it happen. Two or three. That's a biblical principle that is throughout the Bible. What do you mean? I mean, in terms of this sort of thing, you take two or three witnesses with you to confront the person. But here's a little sidebar. Have you ever noticed 
The, Chuck Missler used to call the Bible an integrated message. By that I mean there is never, there's not one verse, and one verse only, about any key doctrine. There's only one place where it says Jesus rose from the dead. Oh no, there's dozens. There's only one place where Jesus claims to be God. Oh no, there's dozens and dozens. At least two or three scriptures confirm every major doctrine. If you can't prove your weird doctrine that you believe, because there's only one verse that kind of says it, you better throw it away. God put this message together so that everything is confirmed in multiple different places. Well, there's only one verse that says Jesus is coming back. Oh no, there's dozens and dozens. And he is coming back, by the way. Okay, so step two, um, regretfully, the elders of the church or people of the church, usually the elders handle it, get two or three elders together. Do you know about Harold and his heroin use or his sleeping with his girlfriend? Yes. We go, hi, you know all of us. Can we come in? Sure. Um, I know that Joe came and talked to you and you said to get off my land or I'll shoot you. But we're back wearing bulletproof vests to ask you to please repent. Look, here it is in the Bible. What you're doing is a sin. We love you. Please repent. That's step two. Two or three along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let's just say two possibilities. One, he says, you know what? You're so right. I'm so sorry. I will never do that again. I will repent of that. Yay. On the other hand, he gets a shotgun out and says, I'll give you 30 seconds to get to your car. Leave me alone. Right? I'm already wondering... Isn't the Holy Spirit convicting this guy, making him miserable? Maybe that's why he's so angry. Hey, I'm going to go with Matthew 18 and do this biblically. But then there's step three. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Did you hear that? Yikes. Why? So you can shame him and embarrass him and give his name and address no, the goal is still in love. The goal is still the lost sheep comes back, restoration of fellowship, repentance. The goal is for his good, listen, and the church's good. We'll get to that. So you tell it to the church. Folks, this is a little uncomfortable. Like I said, I've seen it done twice here. <clears throat> Some of you have been here longer. It may have happened other times. This is very uncomfortable, but we have to discuss it. Harold over here, I'm making up the name Harold. Um, we've gone, a single person went, and then we took two or three. He won't repent. Please be in prayer for him. And if he still won't repent, okay, what that means, let's look at that verse. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, verse 17. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Meaning what? You kick them out. Excommunicate them. Oh, see, you Christians are so judgmental. You are so... Listen, to leave that sinning brother in the church is to leave the big tumor in my stomach. It's only going to spread. It's going to infect 
the church. People will come to the church. I'm coming with my girlfriend, dude. Like we live together, but we believe in Jesus. Oh, Harold's here. Awesome, dude. You guys, you accept Harold and his multiple girlfriends? That's cool, man. I like this church. Yeah, that's not good. It's not according to what God would want. People tend to grade on a curve, especially our society. We need to accept everybody just the way they are. Why? There's sin that can't be tolerated in the church. Okay. If they don't listen to the church, what's implied there is we told the church and you know what happened? Kay and Boyce went and visited the guy and Leslie went with Les and Diana and they visited him and the Nelsons went and uh, Irene went, a bunch of people went to the, they're barraging the guy with love and please reconsider. Let's just say that happens and the guy says, get lost. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's an unsaved person. What are you supposed to do? Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, what do you mean by that? For Jews, Jews used to treat Gentiles as, I can't come into your house. That would mean excommunication. You can't come to church, Harold. Oh, that's so unloving. No, it's the most loving thing we could do. We've done the other loving things, right? And we don't allow that person back in the church. Harold, we love you. You are always welcome when you repent. Let us know. We're all going to be praying for you. We're not going to be gossiping about you. You know, we're not going to look down our nose at you. But for the grace of God, it could be me or you or her or him or anybody. The goal is restoration. But for the holiness of the body of Christ, that's the right thing to do. Do most churches do this? Heck no. The vast majority look the other way. I'll tell you something else. If the person's a big donor to the church, we really look the other way, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, they, he's a multimillionaire and we got a seat up front for him. And Hey, he's working on it. Let's leave him alone. What was your question, Joe? Applies to saints in the church, he's saying. Try to one or two sentences if you can. The pastor started the church. The pastor has his own ministry of the church. How do you deal with it? I think you go to him one on one. Yeah. Like this says, if he doesn't agree, and there are others who know about what you know about that particular pastor. Well, if you can prove what he did in your situation, you kind of can, because I know your situation. I would go with two or three and ask him again. And then this is really uncomfortable in his own church. Biblically, you're supposed to stand up and tell him. But the other option, which I think you took, is I got to get out of this church. Whew, that's so sad. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, good question. All right, so um, uh, keep your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We won't be here long. 1 Corinthians, so after the book of John comes Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians chapter 5.
which comes right after chapter four. Yeah, you got it. First Corinthians chapter five. The Corinthian church was the most troubled church Paul wrote to. They were allowing all kinds of bad stuff to go on. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 5 because there's a member of the church. They have a herald, okay? And he's sleeping with his father's wife, okay? Got the picture? And they're kind of looking the other way. Let's leave him alone. He's an upstanding. He's, you know, he's one of the founding members of our church. First Corinthians five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. In other words, they're proud of their progressive attitude that we're accepting of everyone. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled, verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to who? Satan. Wait, you're giving up on him? No, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What does that mean? So that he'll wake up and be repentant, sorrowful about his sin, restored to the church. The picture is that I went to talk to Harold and I took two brothers and we went and talked to Harold and the church was told and several of you talked to Harold on the phone, texted him, emailed him, went and saw him and he still said, forget it. And we kicked him out of the church. Listen, the desire is that God will work on his heart. He will miss the fellowship of the church. Sunday morning comes and he, he knows I'm not welcome there because I'm not willing to give up my sin. He'll miss the prayer in the church, the worship, the teaching in the church. He'll miss being close to God and feel the distance and turn and come back. And believe me, a biblical church, every one of us would be praying for Harold. That's powerful. Who knows what'll happen? Do you think it'll happen in 30 days? Might, might take 10 years. And then here comes Harold looking much older and you're back. I've repented. Thank you guys so much for this. No other church would have done this. In fact, I'll bet you Harold goes to another church. They find out and go, it's okay, Harold. We love everybody here. That's not very loving. Okay. Don't write me letters. I know this is tough. A lot of people don't like that churches do this. But listen, it is not a whim. It's not, I don't like Harold. Let's find something. It's got to be serious, habitual sin. Not Harold did one thing in 2015. Let's get him on that. It's not that sort of a thing. But the church folks that does this is a church where everybody realizes, man, they deal with sin honestly, lovingly, but seriously. Remember the context. What do you mean? Remember the lost sheep. Remember, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out.
Harold left in the church to sin as he wishes, it's gonna, it's gonna spread. Others are gonna sin. It's the right thing to do. Okay. You say, move on, we get it now. We're already convicted and feel just terrible. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. The, I, the hope is that God will change his heart. Um, we already talked about that and that. We'll skip that. Let's move on to verse 19 and start binding and loosing stuff. What do you say? How many have heard of that before? This is a very, very misused portion of Scripture. Truly, verse 18, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, some translations have, and I think this is the correct translation. Listen again. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, parentheses, already. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven, parentheses, or implied, already. Okay, what is this binding and loosing? And who are we to be binding and loosing? Is this according to our whim? And what is binding and loosing to begin with? Okay, um, let's see. First of all, um, the rabbis would prohibit something or allow something. People would come to the rabbis. These were the learned men of the Old Testament in Judaism. Binding and loosing goes back to the Old Testament to Judaism. And they would ask them, uh, is it okay that uh, Jim had a glass of wine? I saw him at Bass Lake. Binding, prohibiting, loosing, allowing. Well, was he drunk? No. Was it one glass of wine? Yes. The rabbi would probably say, I'm loosing that whole situation. He's, he's free from the law there. He, that's not a sin. On the other hand, no offense, Jim, we're picking on you tonight. Jim had 11 glasses of wine and was drinking out of a little flask from his jacket. I don't know what was in it, but he needed help getting into his car as he drove his Tesla home. That's a little different. Okay. But wait a minute, you may ask, who's making the decision? Who's Mr. Judge here? Answer. People, elders of the church, listen, based on opinion, <clears throat> wrong. Based on whether they like Jim or not, <clears throat> wrong. Based on the word of God, not anything else. I've been waiting to get Jim out of the church. Yes, we're binding him on that. That's not right that he has a glass of wine in public. I, I picked that as an issue because it's one of those gray areas. It's not that big of a deal, but you'd be surprised. There's churches where, oh, he had a glass of wine. How big was the glass? What kind of wine was it? Okay, so what's being said here is you got to take this verse in, not out of, context. What's context? Context is what's being said right before this verse. What's being said right after this verse. What's the subject they're talking about? If you don't do that, you can make the Bible say anything. I'll give you two verses right out of the Bible. I'm going to pluck them out of context and you'll see what I mean. 
Verse number one, and Judas went and hanged himself. Is that in the Bible? Yes. Okay, here's verse number two. Go thou and do likewise. What did he say? That's, I took those two verses out of context. Go thou and do likewise doesn't refer to Judas hanging himself. I'm telling you people to hang yourselves. No, no, no. What's the point? Go ahead, Jim. Whatever you do, do quickly. Whatever, yeah. And whatever you do, do quickly. I love it. Yeah. Don't wait. Here's a rope. Yeah, right. Okay. So number one, um, the binding and loosing has to do with the church discipline we just wrote about, read about, I'm sorry, and talked about. Meaning what? Harold's condition. Remember Harold? Sinner in the church, wouldn't listen to me, wouldn't listen to the three of us, wouldn't listen to the whole church, doesn't care, he's out. You have, in effect, done what the rabbis did in the Old Testament, you have bound him. You, that is sin, it's blatant, it's re repetitive sin, habitual sin, and we are binding you, locking you out of the church. This verse says, whatever you're doing in that way, be assured if it is according to God's word, Whatever you think you're binding on Thursday, the church officially, September 19th, 2023, we officially kicked Harold out of the church. Listen, when was it? September, whatever I said, 23, 19. He's saying God already bound it in heaven. On the other hand, Jim on December 28th had a glass of wine at Bass Lake, and we've talked about it and went, it's no big deal. We're loosing that. God already loosed it. The danger is taking matters into your own hands and our own opinions matter more than the word of God. Let me give you an example. Harold, not you, Jim, Harold is sleeping with his neighbor's wife, okay? And we elders are very liberal and a few of us have girlfriends on the side and, <laughs> and we're saying we're loosing that situation. It's not that bad. See what I mean? That's somebody ought to stand up and go, wait, wait, wait. What Bible are you reading from? The book of Illusions, chapter 9? You're not reading from the Bible I'm reading from. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. There's adultery in the church, fornication, kick them out, Paul says. Matthew, kick them out. With the idea of what? Making them angry? No, restoration. We love you. It kills us to do this, Harold. We can't let you come to church, brother. We pray that you will repent. Please consider it. Look at the verses I printed out for you, Harold. We're praying for you. Same kind of thing. Okay. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. What do people use this verse for? Just about everything. Um, uh, let's see. I have a sore throat. Oh, I'm binding that sore throat in the name of the Lord Jesus. What? Here's the most used one. You ready? I'm binding Satan. Yeah. Really? I'm, I read the newspapers. I watch the news. Doesn't look like he's bound. How long was he bound for an hour? We bind you, Satan. That you... Do we have that authority? No, not biblically. You know what the Bible says regarding Satan? There's three main passages. Number one. Put on the full armor of God. He's talking about Satan and all the demons and the different um, levels of 
power in high places. He doesn't, that's a perfect place to say, just get on your knees and bind Satan. We don't have that ability. He says, put on the full armor of God. James says, resist the devil. Don't take the call. And he will flee from you. He likes easy targets. Number three, turn to the book of Jude. You say, hey, Jude. No, that's different. Jude. Last book of the Bible is Revelation. Second last book of the Bible is Jude. Makes it easy to find. You go to Revelation, you take a left. Jude, it's only one chapter. We've looked at this before in this Bible study. Jude is the brother of Jesus, half-brother. Um, Jude is a trippy book. We, we did it. It's, let's see, it's 25 verses. Took us three weeks when we did it many years ago. You say, boy, you are slow. I am. You're right. I want you to look at verse 9. Jude is a collection of strange things. But even the archangel Michael. Okay, stop. Who's that? He's an angel. He's not just an angel. He's an archangel. There's only two archangels named. There may be others. Gabriel, Michael archangel meaning he's not just an he's not just in the army he's a general in the angelic army you with me so far you think michael's more powerful spiritually than you or less way more okay even the archangel michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of moses remember moses dies god buries him end of the book of deuteronomy i think it is chapter 34 even michael disputing with the devil. Why is he disputing with the devil? Because the devil knows ever since Adam and Eve, people die. And when they die, decay in the ground. They're kind of mine. Forever? No, but the body does decay. Moses is saved and his spirit and soul go directly to heaven. But he says, give me the body, decay in the ground. And Michael is disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Why? Because God has plans for Moses, even his body. He just came back in chapter 17. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? Him and Elijah show up to talk to Jesus. Remember that? In the book of Revelation chapter 11, there's the two witnesses. It sounds just like Moses and Elijah come back. Jim, go ahead. Jesus had three witnesses when that happened. Amen. In the by the way, it's in my notes. I didn't mention it. I was going to say when when the Jews confront Jesus, I think it's chapter eight of John, and say, "Who are you? You're just saying you're God." And Jesus says to them, "Even if I do claim to be God, my witness is true because the Father testifies. That's two. And he doesn't even say it, but who you know who else did? John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that? God, okay, two or three witnesses. Okay, the devil uh, wants the body of Moses. Michael's disputing with him. Oh, we're going to have a fist fight. He did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Why didn't Michael just say, I bind you, Satan? Because he can't. And he's way more powerful than me and you put together. We can't bind Satan, folks. You know who can? Jesus. You know how I know? 
because he does in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. He binds them, guess, get this, for a thousand years. That's pretty good. What does that show you? That Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan. Why? Because Satan's a created being. Jesus is God. Fully God, fully man. Okay, now that most of you are totally confused, let's keep rolling, shall we? Binding and loosing. Um, again, verse 19, I tell you that if two or three of, uh, sorry, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, or in their midst is really how it reads in Greek. Okay, what's going on here? Verse 19, this sounds like carte blanche. I can pluck this verse out of context, and I can get whatever I want, as long as I can get Jeff to pray with me here. Do we agree on this? I get a Rolls Royce? Yes. Lord, we ask for a Rolls Royce, and he goes, amen. We agree. Green would be a nice color with the stereo with a really nice video uh, screen in the back. Is that what it means? What's the context? Church discipline. Binding and loosing in terms of a member that's been sinning, that we've made a judgment based on the word of God, not on opinion. He's saying that there is, listen, greater effect in multiple people praying. Okay, so the big churches, the 20,000 seaters and the 30,000 seater. No, isn't this beautiful? You know what he said? Two or three. The rabbis had written that to form a, a synagogue, do you know how many people you need in a really small town? 10. You don't have 10? You guys can get together and pray if you want. It's not a synagogue. You need at least 10 people. You know what? You just need two just Jeff and I agree to meet and just pray. In some sense, God hears that prayer somehow more and is there present with them. Listen, you know why we're here tonight? We're meeting in his name, aren't we? This isn't Parcheesi, right? We're not playing shuffleboard or just here for the cookies, although I am. But most of you are here for the word of God, right? What are you saying, Joe? I'm saying Jesus is here right now. How do you know that? It's what it says. How can he be here and in Australia and Hong Kong and even Bakersfield? He's everywhere present. But somehow more so when more people are gathered and praying. That's why I said to you earlier, don't just listen to me pray earlier. Pray with me. It's powerful. Okay, here's what I want to avoid. Oh, then me praying alone is worthless. Wrong. He hears even one. But in some sense, we are meant to meet together. Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. You know who the some are? The heralds. I'm just my own church, and me and my girlfriend are going to meet, and we're going to pray. He's out of the will of God. He's not meeting with other believers so that we can be accountable to one another, so that we can pray together, so that we can... Um, meet and have Jesus be here. Awesome. Okay. Uh, we already talked about that. I'm just reading my notes here. We are gathered in his name. That's the purpose of our gathering, whether it's a Bible study, a prayer meeting, church meeting, worship meeting, whatever the case may be. Um, 
gathering around Jesus. Okay, I got to tell you, there's one thing I love about this verse. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I in the midst. You say, why do you love that? I'll tell you why. He's not saying, there I am up on the podium next to the preacher preaching. No, he's in the midst. He's out in the congregation somewhere. Isn't that cool? He's not with the preacher. I mean, he is. He's in the midst. He's in the middle of that group. I love that. Okay. Um, by the way, could an ordinary man say this? If two or three of you meet in my name, when you go home and wherever you go around the world, I'll be there with you. No, you won't, Joe. In spirit, right? Paul says, I would say, I'm with you guys in spirit. I'm sick this week. I can't come to Bible study. I'm with you in spirit. No, Jesus has the attribute of, listen, omnipresence. Who has that? God. Who else? Nobody. Therefore, he's either God or he's crazy, and he's not crazy. The end of this gospel, you know what he says? Lo, I am with you always. Are you lonely sometimes? It's possible to be around a bunch of people and be lonely, isn't it? You're a believer. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Jesus is with you always. You can never really be alone or lonely. It's a beautiful thing. In their midst. I just love that. Okay, I'm looking at notes and I think we're moving on. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. By the way, this fulfills something in Isaiah. Do you remember? The virgin will be with child. Yeah, yeah, we know all that. Yeah, Virgin Birth, yeah, Mary, Virgin Mary, yeah. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Not just for the 35 or 33 years he lived on the earth. That's not what it means only. It means right now, 2024, even in Oakhurst, he's with us. Wherever you go, you're not alone. He's with you. Okay, um, I'm looking at the rest of my notes. Um, in the remaining time, I want to review some things. Verses one to four. We did that last week, Joe. I know. I want to take the whole chapter and summarize. You want to be the greatest possible Christian? Be humble, teachable, childlike. Verse five, receive any believer, be kind, generous, receive them, do good things for them, care about them. And when you do, in verse 5, it's the same as doing it to Jesus. Wouldn't you have Jesus over for lunch? Get in line. We all want Jesus to come to lunch, right? My wife would be going, well, we better clean the house. Oh, I know. I know yeah. And it's clean. You know, women always, it's not perfect, but it's clean. There's a direct connection between Christ and his believers. Verse 6 to 7. On the other side, this is still verse uh, chapter 18. If you do bad things to a believer, look down your nose at a believer. Don't offer hospitality to a believer. Jesus takes it seriously. In fact, if you tempt a believer to sin, directly or indirectly, it would be better if you were drowned. Don't do it. Jesus is connected to us. He takes it seriously. Verses 8 and 9 deal radically and decisively and immediately with sin. Don't entertain it. Don't play with it. Don't think about it. Don't 
run it around your mind a few times. Don't reminisce about how cool it was back when you were sinning. Deal radically. Cut it out. Verse 10, don't despise or look down any believer. There's angels in the presence of God who are watching his face for whatever those believers need. They're there to minister. Verse 12 to 14, God knows each of his sheep by name. They are all, did you hear that? Important to him. Well, Billy Graham was probably really important. Listen, they're all important to him. Even you, even me. Um, God reaches out to seek one that's backsliding. Verse 15 to 17, if you're in a church setting and you should be, why aren't you? But if you are and somebody is sinning, um, it's up to us to try to mend the fence, go in humble love, explain, follow what it says there. And we talked already about what not to do. Gossip, look down your nose at them. Uh, but if they won't repent, the church's responsibility is to get rid of him until he does with the goal of love, repentance, restoration, fellowship. We have his spirit. We can bind and loose things based on the word of God. They're already bound and loose in heaven. We're just announcing it. By the way, in a in an overview sort of a sense for binding and loosing, let me give you the ultimate binding and loosing. Hello, my name's Joe. Hi, my name is Sylvia. Hello, Sylvia. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Heck no. That's a bunch of malarkey. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm good enough to go to heaven on my own. Based on the word of God, I'm not judging you myself, Sylvia, but based on the word of God, I am binding you in your sin because the Bible says, unless you receive Jesus as your savior, you are going to hell. On the other hand, hello, my name is Joe. Hi, I'm Richard. Richard, nice to meet you. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? I do. I've believed in him since 1988, whatever. And the guy's serving the Lord. He believes based on the word of God, if what you're telling me is true, you are loosed from your sins. It's not me loosing him. It's not my opinion. It's based on what? The word of God. Do you see what I'm saying? In an ultimate sense, I'm not binding and loosing Satan. And lastly, there is unbelievable power in prayer and corporate prayer where we pray together is even somehow more powerful. How many do you need? Is 10 enough? 30, 50, 200, 1,000? Two. Isn't that awesome? Okay, we're out of time. Some of you are giving me dirty looks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time, God. There's been so much we've discussed. Um, we pray that you would help us to remember it, how we're supposed to look at others in the church, how we're supposed to be like kids, like children, humble. We pray, God, that uh, you would give us a heart for your people because you have that heart. You love them. If there's one that strays, we, give us that heart that goes after that person and begs them to come back in faith. Bless these truths to, the, uh, to our hearts, God, the way we live may change because of this. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Christ Jesus. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. And those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thank you for being here. See you next time.